Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 14, Joshua chapter 10. I think it's safe to say that nobody but nobody knows more how to make lemonade after being handed a lemon than the Lord God of Israel. And I think you're going to see what I mean by that shortly. In Joshua chapter 10, we'll, we'll find that the unholy treaty that Israel had been tricked into making with the Gibeonites would lead to both conflict and opportunity for God's people. Now, chapter 10 of Joshua is the story of the conquest of the southern part of Canaan and chapter 11, the the northern part. Up to now, Israel had really not made any serious headway into occupying the promised land. They had two battles up to this point, Jericho and I. And both battles served the divine purpose of educating Israel about the nature of holy war. The necessity of being scrupulously obedient to their divine warrior leader, Yehovah. What happened when they were, and more what happened when they weren't. And and never counting on their own strength, but rather on the power of the Lord if they wanted victory. Now let's pause for a few minutes and review some of the ground rules and principles that make Joshua understandable and, and full of meaning for us. And the first thing I want you to notice is that if we want to grasp the rationale for the exacting methods and procedures that the Lord ordered Joshua to follow in conquering Canaan, we'll find it in the God patterns that were set down and defined in the Torah. Now, holy war was being waged, and because it was holy war, there were God-ordained procedures to follow. Now, central to these procedures was that Israel would adhere to the laws of Horem, the laws of the spoils of holy war the law of the ban. And central to the law of Horem was the concept of holy property. Property that was set apart, banned, devoted exclusively for the holy God was holy property. The particular, particular property in question was, of course, always the property that had formerly belonged to the enemy. It was the spoils, the spoils of war. And that property, the spoils, could be literally anything. It could be people, buildings, cattle, gold and silver, garments. It could be food, furniture, cooking pots, anything. The Lord decided which of that enemy's property he wanted for himself, and the remainder could go to Israel. The property the Lord deemed as exclusively his instantly gained the status of holy property. All other property not devoted to God was therefore left in its common state. It did not attain holiness. And so it was then suitable for the Hebrew people to use for themselves. 
Now, theoretically, the, God, uh, the Lord God could decide this on a case-by-case basis. As Joshua conquered city after city, he could decide which property the Lord wanted devoted to himself. But before Israel even began the battle for Canaan, the Lord established a general rule about the spoils that he wanted set aside for himself. And in every case in the conquering of Canaan, he wanted at a minimum the enemy cities and the enemy people. The Lord wanted the Canaanites' fortifications, dwelling places, and temples to their gods. He also wanted the Canaanite people themselves. The way he claimed his holy property was that it was destroyed by Israel's army rather than left intact for use by others. If the holy property was buildings, they were leveled and set on fire. If the holy property was people, they were killed and usually left to burn in the smoldering rubble of the city where they died. Therefore, the law of Haram operates within the pattern of sacrificial offerings that the Lord established early in Torah. That is, an animal is devoted, designated, as a sacrificial offering to God. It thus becomes instantly holy property. In order for the Lord to claim his holy property, the animal had to be killed and then burned up on the brazen altar. If grain was part of the offering, it too was killed, so to speak, all right, by being harvested and then being prepared to be ground up, to be mixed with other ingredients, and then it was offered on the altar fire. But now in the first two battles of Canaan, Jericho and I, another key God pattern was revealed to us. The principle of first fruits. Jericho being the first Canaanite city and group of people that would be conquered in the conquest was therefore the first fruits. The law of first fruits is best explained in the law for new orchards and vineyards uh, whereby none of the fruit can be plucked or used in any way for the first three years after they've been planted. In the fourth year, the fruit produced is to, is to be harvested. But all of it has to be devoted to Yehovah. In the fourth year, the first year the fruit that can be harvested, it's all God's holy property and the people can have none of it. In the fifth year, second year the fruit can be harvested, the first part of the fruit, the tithe, is given to God, but the remainder then goes to the people. Thus, Jericho being the first fruits of Canaan, metaphorically speaking, all belonged to him. It was all set aside as devoted to him. The people of Israel could have no part of it, and thus the order that everything in Jericho had to be destroyed and burned up, including what would usually be considered spoils of war that went to the enemy. Of course, we recently read in Joshua how one man, Achan, violated that principle and caused a great deal of trouble for he and his family and all of Israel. But at the city of Ai, the second of the fruits of Canaan, God would only, wanted only his part, the people and the structures. And then the remainder of the spoils went to Israel. Patterns. 
we have to always be looking for the patterns. Now, as we begin chapter 10, Israel has made a major misstep. And it wasn't their first. Uh, At I, the people of Israel, determined from their easy success at Jericho that this business of holy war and conquering Canaan was going to pretty much be a piece of cake. So they didn't bother to consult God before entering the battle for I, and as a result, they were handed a resounding defeat. And after understanding where the problem lay, Echan's sin plus Israel's sin of arrogance and disobedience and not seeking the Lord, Israel repented and they regained favor with Jehovah and so the Lord handed I over to them. But almost immediately, Israel messed up again. They fell victim to a plan by another group of Canaanites from the area of Gibeon. These Gibeonites feared that they would be annihilated by Israel. They had heard about what happened to Egypt and to the kings of the Transjordan, to Ai, to Jericho. And just as interesting, they had heard, we are told, of the order from Israel's God that all the people of Canaan were to be driven out or destroyed. Gideon occupying territory within the promised land meant that they were marked for termination. So rather than leave the area or fight a losing battle with Israel, they decided on another tactic. They'd send ambassadors to Joshua and claim they had come from a land far away outside of Canaan, that they came to make a treaty of peace with Israel, but also to be under the protection of Israel's enormous military. And had they actually been from far away, this would have been perfectly allowable under the laws of Torah. The leaders of Israel, figuring this was just a rather mundane political matter, again did not seek the advice of the Lord. Big mistake. It turned out that the Gibeonites were lying about where they were from. Israel made a treaty with Gibeon, which by definition, by definition involved a vow to God, and then three days later found out the whole thing was a big sham. The leaders of Israel discussed it, and they decided that they had to make a, make a decision about whether to commit to the lesser of two evils. Do they keep their vow to God and thus remain at peace with Gibeon? Or do they obey God's instructions handed down through Moses that all the people of Canaan were to be driven out of the Holy Lands or killed without exception? And that included Gibeah. They decided that their vow was most important and now they were stuck with the results. Of course, they also seemed to dismiss the reality that from this moment forward, they were going to be operating in rebellion, in sin, because they didn't obliterate the Canaanite people called Gideon. Let's read Joshua chapter 10 and see how this conundrum would begin to play out for Israel. Joshua chapter 10, page 251 if you have the complete Jewish Bible. Mm-hmm. 
When Adonai Sedek, king of Yerushalayim, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and utterly destroyed it, and he had done the same to Ai uh, and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were living among them, his people became greatly alarmed. Because Gibeon was as large as one of the royal cities, larger than I, and all its men were courageous. So Adonai Sedek, king of Yerushalayim, sent this message to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Yarmuth, Yafia, king of Lachish, and Vir, king of Eglon. Uh, come up and help me, and we'll attack Gibeon. Because it's made peace with Joshua and the people of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Yarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, got together, went up with their armies, pitched camp against Gibeon, and made war against it. Now the people of Gibeon sent a message to uh, Joshua at their camp in Gilgal that said, Don't ignore your servants. Come. Come to help us quickly and save us. Help us. Because all the kings of the Amorites living in the hills have gotten together to fight us. Joshua went up from Gilgal. He and all the fighting men with him, including all the bravest ones. Adonai said to Joshua, Don't be afraid of them, for I've handed them over to you. Not one of their men will stand against you. Having spent the entire night marching up from Gilgal, Joshua fell upon them, taking them by surprise. Adonai threw them into confusion before Israel and defeated them in a great slaughter at Gibeon, pursuing them along the road that goes up from Beth Horon and beating them back to the Azachah and all the way to Machedah. And they fled before Israel down the road to Beth Horon. Adonai threw huge hailstones down on them all the way to the Azachah and they died. More died because of the hail than because Israel had killed them with the sword. Then on the day Adonai handed over the Amorites to the people of Israel, Joshua spoke to Adonai in the sight of Israel. He said, Son, stand motionless over Gibeon. Moon, you too, over Ayon Valley. As the sun stood still and the moon stayed put till Israel took vengeance on their enemies. This is written in the book of Yashar. The sun stood still in the sky and was in no rush to set for nearly a whole day. There's never been a day like that before or since when Adonai listened to the voice of a man. Because it happened because Adonai was fighting on Israel's behalf. Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal, but those five kings fled. They hid themselves in a cave at Machedah. And it was reported to Joshua that the five kings had been found, in the, been found hiding in the cave at Machedah. And Joshua said, Roll big stones to the mouth of the cave and put men there to guard them. However, you, don't wait. Keep chasing your enemies. Attack those farthest in the rear. Don't allow them to return to their cities because Adonai has handed them over to you. Now, after Joshua and the people of Israel had finished killing them off in a very great slaughter till they'd been destroyed, and the remaining remnant had entered the fortified cities, all the people returned safely to Joshua at the camp at Machedah, and no one said a word against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open up the mouth of the cave. Bring those five kings out of the cave to me. They did it. They brought the five kings out to him. The kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Yamuth, Lachish, and Eglon. After they had brought the five kings out to Joshua, 
he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the commanders of the soldiers who had gone with him, Come here, put your feet on the necks of these kings. They came and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Don't be afraid or confused, but be strong and bold, because this is what Adonai will do to all your enemies that you fight against. And with that, Joshua struck them, put them to death, hanging them on five trees where they remained hanging until evening. At at sunset, Joshua gave an order. And they lowered them from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, then laid big stones at the mouth of the cave, and there they remain to this day. Joshua captured Machedah that day, defeating it and its king by the sword. He completely destroyed them, everyone there. He left no one. And he did to the king of Machedah what he had done to the king of Jericho. Joshua went on from Machedah and all Israel with him to Libna. And he fought against Libna. Adonai also handed it and its king over to Israel. He defeated it with the sword. Everyone there he left no one. He did to its king what he had done to the king of Jericho. Joshua went on from Libna and all Israel with him to Lachish. And he pitched camp against it and fought against it. Adonai handed it over to Israel. He captured it in the second day. He defeated it with the sword. Everyone there, exactly as he'd done to Libna. And then Oram, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish. So Joshua attacked him and his people until he left no one with him. Joshua went from Lachish and all Israel with him to Elon. And he pitched camp against it, fought against it. They captured it that very day. He defeated it with the sword, completely destroying everyone there, exactly as he had done to Lachish. Joshua went up from Eglon, all Israel with him, to Hebron, and they fought against it. They captured it, defeating it with the sword, including its king, its villages, everyone there. He left no one, exactly as he'd done to Eglon, but he completely destroyed it and everyone there. Joshua turned back, and all Israel with him, to to, uh, Devir, and fought against it. They captured it, its king, and all its villages, defeating them with the sword and utterly destroying everyone there. He left no one. He did to Debir and to, to its king as he had done to Hebron and as he had done to Libna and its king. So Joshua attacked all the land, the hills, the Negev, the Sheflah, the mountain slopes, all their kings. He left none but completely destroyed everything that breathed as Adonai, the God of Israel, had ordered. Joshua attacked them from Kadesh Barneo to Gaza and all the land of Goshen as far as Gibeon. Joshua captured all these kings and their land all at the same time because Adonai, the God of Israel, fought on Israel's behalf. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. This matter of Gibeon making a peace treaty with Israel became known throughout the region of Canaan very rapidly and it shook the other tribes and nations who lived in the land of Canaan a fellow named Adonai Sedek ruled over the city-state of Jerusalem at this time now this is a good time to remind everyone that Jerusalem was not founded by Israel rather it was King David who captured it and made it his capital city The best and earliest records give the credit for the inception of the city to the Jebusites. Now, just who the Jebusites were is a whole other matter. 
there is a lot of indication that they were a branch or a subtribe of the Amorites. Now, the first known name for the city that we today call Jerusalem was Jebus or Jebus. G-E-B-U-S. Jebus is a Canaanite word. Therefore, the residents of Jebus were rightly called Jebusites. Okay. Jebusites. So an Aramic and an Arabic, the same city was called Salem. Shalem. So Jebus and Salem were both recognized very early names for what we today call Jerusalem. Now, in Genesis, we read of this mysterious Melchizedek, king and high priest of Salem, Jerusalem. And of course, this was a time around 600 years before the era of Joshua and the conquest of Canaan. So Jerusalem was already an old city by the time the Israelites arrived. Now, notice the similarity between the two names, Melchizedek and Adonai Sedek. The first translates literally to king of righteousness, the second to lord of righteousness. Now, in reality, they're synonymous terms. It was the tradition of the residents of Jebus to give all the kings of their city-state essentially the same name. And the name wasn't really a name, it was a title. By way of example, Yeshua is a formal name. Messiah is a title. Yehovah is a name. God is a title. Ramesses is a name. Pharaoh is a title. Adonai Sedek was a title for whoever was the current king of Jebus, Jerusalem. And we don't really know what his formal name was. Now, interestingly, it's been suspected even in the days of antiquity that Abraham may have been an Amorite. Since they were a tribe or nation or a culture that came from Mesopotamia, which is where, of course, Abraham came from. And if the suspicion that the people of Jebus, the Jebusites, were a branch of the Amorites... That would easily explain why Abraham would have been so very familiar with Melchizedek, who was the king of the city of Jebus at that time, because they may well both have been Amorites. That's not proved, but it's a pretty reasonable speculation based on a pretty good body of evidence at this point. Now, the reason I even went there is to explain that we see the king of Jerusalem put a five-nation coalition together to go and attack Gibeon in order to punish Gibeon for willingly becoming a vassal of Israel. And some of the verses in Joshua 10 refer to the people of this coalition as Amorites. Now, without doubt, not all of these five nations were Amorites per se. However, the Amorites that began as a small and distinct distinct tribe up in Mesopotamia and because of their aggressive nature eventually became a very dominant culture that absorbed many other tribes and cultures it grew to have such influence in the Middle East 
that by Joshua's day, to say Amorite is not far off from saying in our modern world, Westerner. Okay? Or as another example, the New Testament Bible deals a great deal with Greek culture. And we still speak of Greek culture to this day, but only a minority of those who were part of the Greek culture in the New Testament era were actually Greeks. It was just a situation whereby the people of Greece were credited for developing an integrated system of philosophy and theology and government whose tenets spread far and wide. Nations that adopted that system didn't necessarily come under the rule of Greece, nor did they become Greek citizens. They just operated under a popular and well-known system called by that name. Therefore, we'll find, again in the New Testament, Gentiles who lived under that integrated system of philosophy, theology, and government called Greeks as a general term. Even the people of the Roman Empire were often were as often called Greeks as they were Romans. Okay? But the vast majority of them certainly did not come from Greece, nor had they pledged allegiance to Greece. So Amorites in the Old Testament at this point in their history are roughly equivalent to Greeks in the New Testament in its sense and meaning. It came to refer more to a common set of cultural values than to actual genealogy or nationality. Okay? Now, one of the reasons that Adonai Sedek was so upset by Gibeon quickly kowtowing to Israel was that Gibeon was a great city. It was not some small, helpless group of people. Gibeon was a group of several cities that were as big as what were called royal cities. The royal cities were where the king of a particular region resided. Okay. The royal cities were the largest, richest, most fortified cities. If a king had a standing army, the royal city was where it was garrisoned to protect him. So, for a powerful city-state like Gibeon to go running to Joshua seeking to make peace terms even before it was attacked greatly angered and terrified not only Adonai Sedek but many of the scores of kings that ruled throughout Canaan interestingly this group of kings talked about in Joshua 10 felt their first order of business was to attack Gibeon the coalition that would go against Gideon consisted of Jerusalem, Jebus at that time, Hebron, Yarmouth, Lachish, and Eglon. They were all cities in the southern part, the southern part of Canaan. Hebron was about a seven-hour march from Jerusalem. Yarmouth was only about three hours southwest of Jerusalem. Lachish and Eglon were quite close to one another near, the, near Gaza. All right? um, 
a bit southwest of Hebron. And it seems there was this sense of urgency. And they quickly gathered and moved towards Gibeon very rapidly. Now Gibeon must have been caught wholly unprepared by the approach of Adonai Sedeq's forces. And so they immediately sought Joshua's intervention on their behalf. Now stop and think about it for a minute. What's happened here? Only days, maybe a few weeks earlier, Gibeon had deceived Israel and made a peace treaty with them. Israel decided to make good on that treaty, even though the entire premise for its establishment was a lie. And it was against the direct instructions of the Lord. Now, I'm sure it was a total shock to Israel when almost immediately they found themselves in this insane situation in which due to their unauthorized treaty and a rash vow they made to God, they were obligated to put Israeli lives at stake to fight on Gibeon's behalf. Here were a people that God deemed as his enemy were the only of destruction. Israel now has to move against other enemies to save Gibeon. I mean, you talk about a lose-lose situation. Ah, but here is where the great lemonade maker operates best. Even though Israel had made a terrible mistake in allying themselves with Gibeon, the Lord decided to use it all for his purposes. After Israel was ushered into Canaan over a miraculously plugged up Jordan River, and after Jericho was taken by a series of supernatural acts of Jehovah, and after the second battle for Ai that went like clockwork, Israel was wondering where to make their next move just how they'd initiate it. Yet if the conquest of Canaan was going to be this serial attacking of fortified cities throughout the land, one at a time, Israel's losses were going to mount. And the amount of time it, was, it would take would probably amount to generations. Okay. No people can sustain a high-level war effort indefinitely well the Lord used Gibeon to take that next step you see by definition these five kings who came together to attack Gibeons were kings over royal cities they each lived and ruled in substantial walled cities the cities had nearly impenetrable barriers for defense and since the method for attacking a walled city was by siege, the effort was time-consuming and the casualty rate among the attacking force was always high. Most of the time, siege warfare was more or less about blockading a city. So nobody could come in, nobody could go out. The city's residents couldn't tend fields. They couldn't tend their orchards, so their food supply was limited. Their supply of wood for cooking fires was limited. They couldn't entertain merchant traders from other lands that even at this point in history were relied upon for critical items like weapons and salt, medicines, more. It was a waiting game. And the force that surrounded the walled city usually had the upper hand. The advantage for the king and the resident of the walls, walled cities, though, was weather and attrition. 
If they had planned it well enough, stockpiled enough food and weapons, had a substantial source of water inside those city walls, and pestilence and disease didn't play too big of a role, it would be very difficult for an opposing army to force itself into one of these highly defended walled cities. As often as not, impatience would lead to an all-out assault on the city, and so many soldiers would die that the conquering forces would finally just give up and go home. Now think back to the battle strategy for Israel against Ai. Because Israel at first came against Ai with too few troops, and then they turned tail and ran when Ai fought back fiercely, the leaders of Ai fully expected that same thing to happen when Israel tried it again. So Joshua turned that into his advantage. You see, the trick is to get the army to come out from that city into the open. To leave their tall defensive walls, their high ground positions, and then they're vulnerable. The military leaders at I wanted to strike a serious and demoralizing, maybe final blow against Israel. So when they felt that Israel was too weak to cause them any real trouble, they burst out from inside their thick stone fortress and chased after Israel's army. Little did they know that another and hidden group of Hebrew soldiers was waiting for them to leave so that they could rush inside their city and take it over. When the army of Ai left the city, the ambush was sprung, and then the whole thing was over in a matter of hours. So here we have five kings representing five substantial kingdoms in Canaan that were on God's to-do list. Sooner or later, Israel was going to have to do battle with each one of these kingdoms and destroy them in order to occupy the promised land. The Lord simply expedited the process by using Gideon as bait. These five kings made the fatal mistake of taking their armies away from their strong defensive positions, away from their walled fortresses, out into the open for no other reason than to display their anger against some fellow Canaanites, the Gibeonites, who felt it wiser to switch rather than fight. In verse 8, the Lord begins his instructions to Joshua using the much-used phrase, fear not. Now, why would Joshua fear? He was going to battle five nations simultaneously. Whoa. And he tells Joshua that the battle to save Gibeon that will pit Israel against the most formidable foes that they've yet faced has already been decided. God has turned those five kings along with their kingdoms over to Israel. Joshua believed God. That was the key to victory. And as surprised as the Gibeonites were at their Canaanite brothers from the south coming to punish them, so were these five kings at the sudden attack of Joshua and their Hebrew enemy. Okay. Using the night time to their advantage, by the way, something that Israel would do as a rather regular strategy in their history, 
They traveled from their permanent encampment at Gilgal during the dark hours and established, uh, rather launched a surprise attack on the opposition coalition forces of Adonai Sedek. It threw the enemy into a panic. Okay. A fleeing, or rather a fleeing army is both racked with fear and unorganized. And this army was far away from the safety of 30 foot high, 10 foot thick walls back home. The chase was on. The goal of those five armies was to get back to their home base and regroup behind those city walls. But Joshua's job was to prevent that. While those five armies were out in the open, they could be much more easily dealt with than if Joshua allowed those enemy troops to make it home intact. Then he'd have to use siege warfare, one city at a time, to take them. So the time was now. The coalition army fled towards Beit Horon. There was a path through the mountains that might provide an escape path. Beth Haron means house of caves. The, the, the area that they went to was littered with caves. And so soon, those five kings would use one of them to try and hide from Joshua's forces. Beth Haron was more of a region than a, than a town. These passages speak of an upper and lower Beth Haron, or ascent and descent. Right? This place is northwest of Gibeon. Upper Beit Haron is high up in the hills, about five miles from Gibeon. Lower Beit Haron is about a mile and a half further away. And these were in the pass descending out of Beit Haron that the Lord himself smote the army of the five kings with hailstones. The stones were large enough and came upon them so suddenly that more of them died from the hailstorm than were killed by his, uh, the Israeli army. Now it's here in verse 12 that we get one of the more famous and puzzling stories in the entire Bible. It's the story of the day that the sun stood still in the sky and night refused to fall on account of Joshua asking the Lord to make it happen. Now let's take a look at this story for a few minutes. First of all, there was a very practical reason that Joshua wanted the daylight to go on longer than normal. Battles ended at sunset in that era. It was a simple matter of not being able to discern enemy versus friend. Okay. Plus they were exhausted by the end of the day, they needed food and rest. In this particular incident, the troops of the Five Nation Coalition were anxious for darkness to come so that they could hide and then escape from Joshua's clutches. They stood a very good chance of most of them making a stealthy return during the night back to their home cities. Joshua perfectly understood this and realized that by all that was natural, there was simply not going to be enough daylight hours that day to finish the job. The writer of Joshua, who's often referred to as the compiler by Bible academics, says forthrightly 
that verses 12 and 13 of Joshua 10 are written in the book of Yeshar, or Joshua, as we know it by. In Hebrew, it says it's the Sefer of Yeshar, the Sefer of Yasha. And in English, it literally means the book of the upright, or the book of the righteous. Okay. So despite what somebody might think, Jasher's not somebody's name. This isn't the name of a person. Okay. The book of Yashar has never been found. Right. But it, is, it obviously existed at some point in history. Okay. It is thought to be a compilation of poems and war songs about some of Israel's greatest heroes. Now, I've told you on a number of occasions that the Torah, the Old Testament in general, wasn't written like a daily journal or a diary. Okay. Most of the books had a primary author, probably not even one of the books was completed start to finish by the same person. Okay. The time frame was simply too long, and usually it was written in retrospect. Okay. So whoever contributed this particular section of Joshua had a document at his disposal that was called the Book of Yashar. And it had to have been very popularly known. Therefore, the form of the quote about the sun standing still is set in the form of poetry. And it's important that we keep that in mind. Exactly how literal we should take it is the issue that's created a multitude of opinions about these two small verses. Now let me start by saying that to some extent or another a miracle was involved here. There's really no other way to read it or account for it unless we just want to see it as a Hebrew fairy tale. And by the way, many see it exactly that way. The scene has Joshua asking God to keep the sun and the moon from setting and thus preventing nightfall. How is it that both the sun and the moon are mentioned since it's a daytime event. Well, we've all seen that faint glow of the moon during the day, haven't we? Okay. And in our current narrative, we have the sun hovering over Gibeon and to the west over Ayalon was the outline of the moon. The sun was on its decline, the moon on its ascent. Okay. Joshua cried out to God to help him by giving him more daylight hours. And God complied. Now it's interesting to me that in verse 14 that it says there was no daylight that day before or after it. And part of the reason for, that moment, for the momentous nature of that day, what set it apart, was that the Lord hearkened into the voice of a man, it said. Now what makes this interesting is the word hearken. We discussed this before in here. The Hebrew word that is usually translated as hearken or listen is shema. Shema. Shema doesn't mean listen. Okay. Hearken is an outdated English word and it also does not mean listen. Rather it means to hear and obey. It's an instruction. It's an order. It's not a passive word of simply hearing something like listening to the sound of a bird chirping. 
It carries with it a sense of action. The hearing brings the doing. To Shema is to hear something and then do it. Now, it would be a tad too far, probably, to say that God obeyed Joshua. Yet, poetically speaking, that's sort of the idea that's being brought across here. It's portraying Joshua as having such great standing with the Lord and displaying such perfect obedience that Joshua speaking it causes the Lord to act without deciding the rightness or wrongness of it. I, I think the best way for us to think about this is as in Exodus when the Lord explained that as his mediator, when Moses spoke something, it was as, as if God himself spoke it. When Moses ordered the Nile to turn blood red, he didn't have to go to God, have a consultation with him, and then God turned around and ordered the river to change color. God put authority into the mouth of Moses such that Moses could order these things using God's power. Now, I believe that's the same sense that's happening here. It is but another way of explaining that when Joshua ordered the sun not to set, it was just as if God ordered it. Now, is that actually what happened? Did the earth actually stop rotating for a time? Or did its rotation slow way down for a few hours? Now, taking it at its most literal, these verses are not saying that the sun arrived at its zenith and stayed there perfectly still. Rather, it's saying that the sun stood in the midst of the sky, which just means it didn't set. As it says, it did not hasten, it didn't hurry towards the horizon so as day would become night. Now, there are some scholars who think that since this is poetry, and without doubt it is, so that we can rightly view it a little differently. For instance, there are those days for all of us when the hours fly by so fast and we have something so critical that we must accomplish that it seems as if time is sped up. And there are other times when we look at the task that must be accomplished today, we see no way it can possibly happen. But we begin, and then lo and behold, somehow we did 12 hours worth of work in eight. And using poetic license, that might have been the case here in Joshua. Now, the long and the short of it is that while it is certainly possible for the Lord to stop the earth from rotating, the sun from setting, the moon from rising, I find that both because of the type of literature that's being used here, and that it is virtually acknowledged in these passages themselves that this is a story taken directly out of the book of Jasher, a book of war songs and poetry, and that the effects worldwide of the earth suddenly stopping its rotation ought to be mentioned in history and legend as universally as is the ancient worldwide flood. But, but we don't find that. Right? And indeed, practically every society in the, ever uncovered has a record of a great flood in primitive times. Now, I'm not at all dogmatic 
about how this event came about. A miracle of God was wrought here for the sake of Israel. Some kind or another. And I'm satisfied to just leave it there after giving you a few thoughts about it. We'll take up the remainder of Joshua 10 next week.